We're going to go to Revelation 2 today, but it's going to be a little bit before we get there. I want to make a few requests of you before we get into the text. In the usual uh, warrior hero uh, trope in movies, there is often a moment in the movie uh, that is both humorous Uh, but also intriguing. Oftentimes in a movie where there's a warrior or a hero, they will come to the gate of a new place. And when they arrive at the gate of a new place, a new experience, there will be a gatekeeper and the gatekeeper will ask them to hand over all their weapons. And most of the time in these movies, you know, they'll start pulling weapons out of their boots and out of their back pocket and it's a little bit of a chuckle that, that takes place. But I think it's important to note that for the person to enter a new place or a new thing, there's some stuff they've got to lay down and surrender. There's some stuff that they have to put on the table in order to experience the new that awaits them on their journey. So there's a few things that I want to ask you to put on the table right now. First and foremost, I want you to choose right now before I've started preaching the message, that if this message applies to you, you will respond and come forward in a little bit. Don't wait until the end. Go ahead and decide right now I'm going to respond, all right? The second thing that I would ask of you is let go of your concern with trying to control what everybody thinks about you. Just let it go. Lay that down. Number one, They aren't as focused on you as you might presume. They're too worried about themselves. And so we can't control everybody's opinion. The only opinion that should really matter to us in this room is the opinion of our Father. And so we have to let go of trying to control everybody else's ideas about us in order to really lean into His ideas about us. The next thing I want to ask of you is I want you to take whatever title whatever role you have, whatever you're known for at Cornerstone. You know, that, that might be pastoral staff, that might be board or elder, that might be a volunteer or team leader or small group leader. It might be first-time guest. But I want you to strip all of that off and I want you to lay it to the side because it's not important this morning. The only title that matters in your life this morning is the title of son or daughter of God. That title is the most important title and all other titles are rendered illegitimate. If you don't get that title right. And so take all of that off. Whoever you are today, we're going to respond to the Lord. Because before we're any of that other stuff, we're his sons and we're his daughters. So if we can do that today, if we can make a decision to engage today, to not be um, more focused on convenience than we are connection, then I think the Lord has something that he wants to do in our lives You'll find as we move forward together uh, that one of our core values here will be spiritual hunger. Cornerstone is going to be known as a people who are hungry for God. We are going to be identified as a people that desire the Lord deeply. 
all over the city and the region, when they talk of Cornerstone, they're going to say, those people want God. I can't think of a thing that is better to be said of us than they want God. What I've learned about hungering for the Lord through the years is you might have a lot of other stuff that needs to be worked on, but if you're hungry for God, all of that stuff will work itself out after a while. You might be flawed, you might be frail, you might be imperfect, but if you're hungry for Him, then you are lined up accordingly for all of that to be taken care of, right? So that's who we're going to be in this place. We're going to want God because that's why this house was built. We're going to see this place full of people, sure, but I'm way more interested in it being full of Him. The rest will take care of itself. So we get to Revelation 2, and it's an interesting moment in Scripture. I want to pray and then we're going to dive in. Lord, today is your day. And we, in faith, make the statement of truth that you are here. You are among us. I pray that over the next few moments, you would allow us to be awakened to your nearness. I ask that, Lord, you would help me to be an accurate reflection of your heart and your nature. I pray that your love and your goodness will emanate from my life, that while I talk, you would speak to the depths of our heart. Jesus, you're here. Would you come with increase? Amen. So I have a question. How many of you in the last couple of months have written a letter, handwritten letter? Yeah, very few hands went up, right? If you'd asked that question 20 years ago, all over the room. You know, our mode of communication has changed dramatically through the years. It's not common to get a handwritten letter anymore. I mean, we've got these, right? And, and, and they make communication really convenient. So I, I'm not saying that's a negative. I mean, you could just shoot somebody a text right now. I, I, in kindergarten, my, my kindergarten teacher apparently didn't do a good job of teaching me how to hold a pencil or I just wasn't a good student. It's probably the latter. Because even to this day, I choke my pencil so hard that like after four or five sentences, my hand is cramping up. So I don't love writing letters. I appreciate the succinctness of a text message. But even in our text messaging now, there's abbreviations, there's emojis, which by the way, you need to be careful sending emojis. To our older crowd, you need to ask your younger ones what they mean, because they sometimes don't mean what you think they mean. But we have all these modes of communication. I remember when email hit. Michelle was in college, and she said, we've got this thing called electronic mail. It's like, all right, that's interesting. I'm going to keep writing letters. As a matter of fact, in our home, there is a closet, and within the closet, there are a million things. It's cluttered. But there are two precious things within the closet. There are two shoeboxes, and within those shoeboxes are the letters and the cards that Michelle and I wrote and sent to one another while we were dating in our college years. I mean, it's just a precious, precious set of memories right there. Now, every once in a while when I'm in the closet, maybe once or twice a year, nostalgia will hit when I see one of those shoeboxes. I'll pull it out, and I'll read a couple of letters. Now, admittedly, 44-year-old Jeremy reading 19-year-old Jeremy is a little humiliating. (laughs) The 44-year-old me would like to reach through time and give that guy a pep talk because he was insecure and immature. And I've never really questioned Michelle's judgment in decision-making, but the fact that she married that guy makes me pause from time to time. (laughs) 
Nevertheless, with these letters, when I read them, it's almost like I am brought back to the moment that I wrote them. You remember what you felt. You remember what you went through. Something that stirs on the inside of you. There's still something really valuable about expressing your heart to other people. So when we get to Revelation chapter 2, we are given seven unique letters to seven unique churches in seven unique cities. These letters were penned by John the Revelator, but they were dictated to him from the person we know as Jesus Christ himself. Jesus communicated, he verbalized, and John transcribed God's heart to his church. Now these letters are really specific. A lot of the details in the letters are are dated. They're connected to those people in that time and in that place. But one thing I am confident of is though times change and obviously technology advances and the way things look are different, the human heart is pretty well the same as it was 1900, 2000 years ago. We still deal with the same fears, the same struggles, the same anxieties. We have the same hopes, dreams, and aspirations, the same wants, the same longings. They might be packaged different, but people are people all these years later. And when Jesus dictated these letters, he did not just mean for them to be time capsuled and left for that bygone era. He spoke them then and they reverberate through the ages and they shout loudly to us right here and right now in America and Cornerstone Church. The very first letter was written to the church in Ephesus. It's my favorite of the seven, and I think maybe it has more to say than any of the others to the church in America right now and to us at Cornerstone. But before I get into the text, can I give you a little history, a backstory, so that you know who got the letters? So the city of Ephesus was known at that time as the trade capital of the world. It was about eight miles off the coast, and there was a canal that came into the city. So you can only imagine being the trade capital of the world, having access to the sea, that Ephesus had access to the entire known world. Every mineral, every spice, every type of wealth and commerce came into Ephesus. Every idea, every philosophical thought, every expression of human brilliance came into Ephesus. Every animal, every ethnicity, every tribe, every tongue, every hue of skin was a melting pot right there in Ephesus. It was a place of elite thinking. It was was the place you want to be. Similar to Nashville, with it seems like the whole world is converging on Nashville now. Ephesus was so advanced, they had an aqueduct system that transported water, and it was the most advanced aqueduct system the world had ever known. Historians will tell you, uh, and, and uh, geologists will tell you, archaeologists rather will tell you, that they had a theater that they built that seated 25,000 people. Not one microphone in sight, yet people could delight in theater, 25,000 of them, because of the amplif- amplification of the structure. It was an unbelievable place, all sorts of wealth, all sorts of brilliance. 
But we live close enough or in a city to know that there, there's the part that you see that everybody comes to see and then there's, there's an undercurrent to every city. And Ephesus was no different. Yes, every thought, every philosophical idea came into the city as well as every religion of the world. Every idol of the world was brought into the city. It was a hodgepodge of religious thought. Varying ideas on who God was or how many gods there were. It was a place that had one structure that is considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Once again, how brilliant they were in their engineering. But this structure was a temple dedicated to the false goddess Artemis. So they did something that was one of those seven most magnificent buildings in the world and it was dedicated to a lie. It was in Ephesus where people rioted in the streets against Christians. You can only imagine the negatives that were there. And within all of that, the good and the bad was the church of Ephesus. And the way the church started in Ephesus, are you good? The way the church started in Ephesus is Paul came to the city. He preached the gospel in a short burst. A few people got saved and he handed the work over to his friends, Apollos, Aquila, and Priscilla. And then he went on about his missionary journey. He returned a few months later, and when he returned, he was met on the shore by a group of new believers. Paul laid his hands on them. They were filled with the Holy Spirit, with the evidence of speaking in tongues. And Paul said, God's doing something here. It's in the Bible. God's moving. So Paul goes into the city of Ephesus and goes straight to the synagogue, the religious establishment, and he starts preaching the good news of Jesus. Unfortunately, he was met with hesitance. He, he was met uh, with resistance. The people were complaining. They were arguing. They were bickering. They were contending. I, I, that doesn't happen here, but in other places it does. And Paul said, I'm tired of banging my head against the religious wall. So Paul goes to downtown Ephesus and he starts making tents. He would spend the whole morning making tents in the heat. A part of his uniform was a handkerchief. It was under his garments and he would work and the handkerchief would get sweat from, sweaty from his labor. And then people would take those handkerchiefs and they'd put them on sick people. And sick people would be healed. Paul would take the money from making tents and he would rent out the main lecture hall of Ephesus. And during the middle of the day in that city, it was normative for people to take a long time off from work in the middle of the day and just go listen to people talk and teach. So Paul rented out the main lecture hall with his own money, preached the gospel, and people started getting saved in droves. It was revival. It was a move of God. Not only were people being healed with handkerchiefs, but people were being saved in such number and in such dramatic fashion that the economy of Ephesus was turned on its ear. It was in Ephesus where the idol makers got very angry with Paul because people quit buying idols because now they were followers of Jesus. Yeah, that's the thing to clap about. I'll take it a step further. It's like God moving in our church 
and spreading out to our city in such a way that all of the establishments that are built upon human depravity had to close their doors because their patrons had dried up. It was every building, every place that preyed upon the frailty and weakness of man and woman having to shut down because so many people were being radically saved that they no longer had means of occupation. That's what was happening in Ephesus. Why not here? Why not now? Right? I mean, if we're going to dream, let's dream. I think the kingdom of God is capable. And so God was moving powerfully. But there are a couple of things that really give me intrigue about the church of Ephesus. First, when Paul was selecting a pastor for Ephesus, he selected his spiritual son, his dearly beloved spiritual son, Timothy, to be the pastor. I don't know about you, but when you care about somebody, you want to put them in a good spot, right? And Paul knew Timothy was young. Paul knew Timothy would need some spiritually mature people to undergird his ministry, to encourage him, to strengthen him. I've spent the last 10 years helping younger ministers uh, process their call and sometimes transition uh, into new roles. And it's always been important to me to protect them when I could. So Paul picking Timothy for Ephesus was a statement of how stable and healthy and good the church was in Ephesus. But it gets even better. Scholars believe that John, the disciple who reclined upon Jesus at the Last Supper, John, the disciple who stood at the foot of the cross while everybody else had tucked tail and ran, the one that said, I am the one Jesus loves, it's believed that John lived in Ephesus and was a vital member of the church in Ephesus, that he worshiped with these people. It's even believed that he wrote the gospel of John while being a part of the church in Ephesus. John loved Jesus. John knew he was loved by Jesus. When John was selecting a church, I have a feeling he was going to be pretty particular about where he was going to live and who he was going to fellowship with. And I really doubt that he would have associated with any group of people that inaccurately reflected his precious Jesus. So the fact that John lived there and was a part of that church indicates to us that this was not some ho-hum, run-of-the-mill basic church. These people were special. They were important. But it gets even better. When John was standing at the foot of the cross, Scripture tells us there was a moment when Jesus looked at John, who was standing beside Mary, Jesus' mother, and said, John, that's now your mother. And mother, John is now your son. So historians believe that John and Mary, the mother of Jesus, were connected and stayed together for the rest of their lives. And that Mary lived on the outskirts of Ephesus and was a worshiper in the church of Ephesus. Now look, I've preached in environments where people, there are rows of people with doctorates in theology. I've preached in front of millionaires. I've preached in in front of physicians that were way more intelligent than me. None of that is nearly as intimidating as the idea of Jesus' mama sitting on the front row. There ain't no accountability. Like you talk about the OG church mama right there. Can you imagine? Like somebody get out of line. Yep. Nope. That's not, that's not, that don't look like my son. I feel bad for anybody that had to preach with her in the crowd. That's not what he said. Because a mama never forgets. 
You better cross your T's and dot your I's. <laughs> Mary wouldn't have just been with any group of people. They would have had to look and feel a lot like her son. So we're talking about a special church. So let's get to the letter. Revelation 2 verse 1. Write this letter to the angel of the church in Ephesus. This is the message from the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand. The one who walks among the seven gold lampstands. Those seven gold lampstands represent the church. And Jesus was making a statement right in the beginning. I'm walking among you. I am walking near to you. Cornerstone Church, you need to hear this. Jesus is walking the aisles. The Spirit of the Lord is indeed with us. Sometimes the intensification of His presence is very felt, but nevertheless, we know you can lock it in as truth. He is with us now. He is among us now. He is near to you now, and He is available to you now. Jesus has always been here. He's always been walking the aisles of Cornerstone Church. That's what he does. He stays present among his people. I'm walking among the lampstands. And so he dictates the letter. I know all the things you do. Pause for a moment. Because some of us came up under a theological paradigm or a church experience that makes that phrase intimidating. We have the idea for some of us embedded in us that God knowing all I do, like he's the all-seeing eye waiting for you to blow it. Waiting for you to mess up. Some of us live under the cloud that God is just eagerly anticipating his opportunity to pounce on our imperfection. But I want to tell you, God does know everything you do. And he's way more interested in what you've got right than what you've got wrong. And even more than that, he's way more interested in what Jesus accomplished than what you have or have not accomplished. He knows everything you do and he is watching it through the filter of the blood of Jesus. I know all that you do. I've seen your hard work and your patient endurance. I know you don't tolerate evil people. You've examined the claims of those who say they are apostles, but they're not. You've discovered they are liars. You've patiently suffered for me without quitting. And then verse 6. But this is in your favor. You hate the evil deeds of the Nicolaitans just as I do. The, the Nicolaitans were a segment of Christian that had the idea that because we're now in the age of grace, they could behave however they wanted to, and it was covered under grace. So the Nicolaitans practiced overt promiscuity, drunkenness, lewdness, and they would just say, God's grace has got it. I'm going to act how I want to. God's got it. In essence, they manipulated Scripture and grace to justify the fleshly behavior of their life. I know none of us have seen any of that in the world around us of late. The contortion of the Word of God to justify what the flesh wants. And Jesus said, I know that you hate that way of life. Not the people, but the way. It's a good letter. It's a bullet point of all the things that Ephesus was getting right. 
I really do believe that I could read this letter to you, Cornerstone, and to you as an individual and your household, and much, if not all of it, would be an accurate depiction of who you are. Can I read this letter to you, a modern translation right here and right now, Cornerstone? I want to read this as if Jesus were writing it to you. Cornerstone Church, I'm walking among you. I have always been, I am, and I will always be present and available to you. And I've seen everything that you do. Nothing has been missed by me. I'm ignorant of nothing. I'm numb to nothing. I am fully present and fully available. And I've seen how hard you work. I've seen all of your service projects and your serve days. I've, I've seen your restoration projects as a church, your beautification projects. I, I've seen how you've gone to Africa many times and done the work of the kingdom there. I see how you get the Christmas boxes and you give and you're generous. I, I see how you serve around here. Some of you get up really early and you're here to make sure that people are well taken care of. I've seen you in first impressions. I've seen you working with the youth or the kids department. I've seen you in the worship team, in the media team. I've seen you on the board. I've seen your hard work. And I just want to say thank you for it. Thank you for your efforts, for all of your volunteering. And not only that, I see you as an individual and as a family. I see how you wake up every morning. For many of you, you punch the clock into your place of employment and you work hard doing everything unto the Lord, giving your best as a bright shining light to me. You punch out and you go home and you serve your family. You take care of your property and every person within your property. Not only that, but I see how you take your paycheck and from what you've earned, you generously give to me and my kingdom. I see how hard you're working. I see when you're tired. I see when it's been a long week. And I just want to say thank you. It means a lot to me. Not only that Cornerstone Church, but I see your patient endurance. I know it hasn't always gone the way you'd hoped. I I know some things haven't materialized the way you anticipated. Some of the timing hasn't met your expectation. I I know that there's still some prayers you've got hanging out there that you're waiting to come to fruition. I I know that, that you're waiting on me in some areas. But I want to say thank you for knowing that my ways are higher than your ways and my thoughts are beyond your thoughts and that my timing is perfect. And you have not grown weary. You you have not given up. You have been willing to wait on me and be patient. That matters to me. And I'm so grateful for it. Not only that, but thank you for not tolerating evil. You live surrounded by a world that feels like it's growing increasingly dark. And people left and right are compromising themselves. But you made the determination that you will be faithful to me and to my word. That you will live at a standard of holiness. No, you're not perfect. You don't always get it right. But the tone and tenor of your heart is full of desire to do what pleases me. And that matters to me. And thank you for not tolerating evil in the house of God. Thank you for having a standard, for making a stand, for saying there's just some lines that we will not cross. That matters matters to me. Thank you for endeavoring to live holy and to be holy. Not only that, but thank you for knowing my word well enough that you're not tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. 
that you understand that that ministers and self-claimed ministers, they have their place, but only Jesus is on the pedestal. Right? Thank you for keeping me in my proper place and not replacing me with some hero along the way. And thank you for staying true to the simple doctrines of the faith. Not only that, but I I know at times it's been hard for you. I know you've experienced some suffering. I, I knew when you were sick. I knew when there was not enough money and there were way too many bills. I I saw when the knife was plunged in your back. I heard the words that were said about you. I watched the rejection. I, I, I saw the disappointment. I was in the middle of it with you when you were wronged. But you didn't quit. You're still here, right? And that's a big deal to me, says the Lord. There are a lot of other people that bailed out. They hit eject. They ran for the hills. But here you are in this padded seat, determined that you're not going anywhere. That matters to the Lord. Somewhere along the way, you chose to not allow disappointment to be the Lord of your life. You kept me the Lord of your life. You realized that running this race was not necessarily always about keeping a fast pace. Sometimes inch by inch, you just drug yourself across the ground, but you kept coming after me. Thank you for that. It matters to me. And thank you in a world that is convoluted and the lines are being blurred and gray seems to be the dominant color. That you have said, I will not compromise scripture to satisfy my flesh. I will not manipulate or twist or abuse the grace of God for my own self-gratification. Thank you for that. It's a big deal. It's a pretty good letter, right? Right. Feeling good. Thank you, Jesus. It's a good letter. Great bullet points. I believe very much that these these bullet points apply to our church and to you. I mean, y'all know something else is coming though, right? I, I skipped a couple verses. Verse 4, but we had a good thing going. I, I liked all the encouragement. Why you got to say but? But I have this complaint against you. You don't love me or each other as you did at first. I want you to hear this. He doesn't say that you don't have some measure of affection. He doesn't say that you're in sin or that you're in rebellion or that you're being evil. He's not talking about some bad thing that's got to be broken off your life or that you've got to turn away from. He says there was a time when you and I had something and I miss it. 
Remember this church. My gosh, this church was like the super church. Yet they were the super church. Yet something was off. Jesus had to say in the next verse with an exclamation point, look how far you've fallen. It's almost as if he had to shout it to wake them up out of a stupor because they had gotten so busy being good little Christians that they didn't realize that they were no longer deeply with Christ. They had adorned themselves with all the accoutrements of religion. But they had grown numb and cold to the pounding heart of Jesus. I want to say it one more time. He's not angry here. You know, Jesus doesn't have to do the sandwich method. Y'all know what that is? You've been sandwiched whether you realize it or not. It's one of the dumbest leadership circle ideas out there. If you got something to tell somebody that they don't want to hear, the theory is, I'm going to tell you something good. I'm going to slip in the negative that you don't want to hear real quick, and then I'm going to come back with something really encouraging. Now, we think people are dumb enough <laughs> to not hear the middle, even though we wanted to, them to hear the middle the whole time. Jesus doesn't have to sandwich us, right? I mean, this is the same person that looked at people and said, you're a brood of vipers. You're whitewashed tombs. He's the same one that went into the temple, flipped tables, cracked a whip and said, you're making this a den of thieves. So he doesn't have to like play nice. If he's feeling some kind of way, Jesus can just go ahead and say how he's feeling. There was no need to give all the list of the good things unless he genuinely in his heart had an aching and a longing for something more. Jeremy, you mean to tell me that I can come to church every Sunday and something be off with me and Jesus? I can be in a life group or even a life group leader and something be disconnected? Jeremy's not telling you that. It seems to be what Jesus is saying. You mean to tell me that I can have like a ton of Christian apparel in my closet? I can be like a K-Love or Air One fanatic? I can have a Jesus Fish bumper sticker. Jesus Fish eating Darwin Fish bumper sticker. Next level. And something be off with me and Jesus? That seems to be what he's saying. Like I can have a Bible that's got a good amount of highlighter in it. I can have a prayer language. I can have a badge. And something be off with me and Jesus. And that, that's what he's saying. But, but he's not shouting it with anger. He's not frustrated. He misses you. Every other religion in the world has a false deity that it worships. And in those religions, the deities demand that its worshipers beat their flesh into submission, strain and stretch and inconvenience themselves, exhaust their emotions, their mind, their time, and their energy, all the while knowing that they will never sufficiently please the deity they're worshiping. You and I have a Jesus 
who submitted himself to the brutality of human evil, who was stretched out and strained in his flesh, who submitted himself to the taunts and to the threats of mankind. And he did it all so that he could satisfy himself, so he could remove the stain of sin from you. He did it because he wanted you. Every other false religion out there, they, there is nothing to gain. It's all about that deity and no one can please it. Jesus said, I want you so bad. I'm the one that'll do the straining. I'm the one that'll do the submitting. I'm the one that'll go through the pain and the suffering. He doesn't want your Christianity. He wants you. He wants you. It's the beauty of Jesus. He wants you desperately. And so when we go through these stretches where we had more affection then than we do now, something in him aches because he cares for you and he wants you. He appreciates your church attendance. He appreciates your tithe. He appreciates you serving. But if he can't have your heart, it's incomplete. Have you ever missed someone? Like really missed someone? I don't want to try to push emotional buttons, but I think this is the best way I know to explain what I think the Lord feels like in this passage. At the end of November, it will be the seven-year mark of my dad passing away. And I miss him. I still have pictures. Thankfully to Facebook, you know, memories pop up. I have stories. I have other people that, that knew him that I have shared experiences with that we can reminisce about my dad. Man, none of that is as good as when I could pick up the phone and talk to him for an hour or two. Right? I miss him. And the best way I know to describe what it's like almost seven years in now is... is you think about your favorite retail store or just your favorite place to go, maybe your favorite coffee shop, whatever. In almost every establishment, there is background music playing. It's just there. It's just to fill the air to, to prevent awkwardness, right? But every once in a while, a familiar song will come on. And suddenly it's like the music gets turned up louder. And you are drawn into a moment, a memory, and it becomes really alive to you again. Anybody ever experienced that? It's kind of what it's like with my dad. It's always kind of there. But every once in a while, our song starts playing. And I feel the connection and the emotions and the affection rise up again. If the band can come play. This message this morning is Jesus playing your song. It's, it's Jesus who's always been here. 
always been present. Turning up the volume a little bit to draw your attention back to him. Because my suspicion is maybe you're just now recognizing it, but you miss him too. Don't you remember what it was like when we would be in worship? And I mean, you were somewhere, maybe the band wasn't even any good. It didn't matter because he's good. You didn't need it to be good because you were so mesmerized by his goodness that you would throw your hands up and tears would just roll down your face. You didn't even need a song because you had a savior. You remember, you remember how you used to ride down the road and uh, you'd be listening to worship music or preaching and you had to pull over because you just felt like God had sat down in the automobile with you. Remember that? And now usually when you're riding around, nothing wrong with this, but you got talk radio on and it's probably getting you agitated. Don't you miss those rides with Jesus? Remember when you'd go to your prayer closet, whatever that looks like for you, and you couldn't wait to get there, and it was almost as if he was waiting there for you. And you would pray, and it would feel like the presence of the Lord filled the room. And now, on the times you go in, it just feels like you're hitting the ceiling. God's not mad at you. He's not angry. We're not talking about you being in sin. You're not a rebel. He just misses you. And I have a feeling deep down you miss him. Remember what it was like when you used to love getting to church and talking with your friends about what God was doing in your life. And because you were so conscious of him all week, you had an overflow of things to testify to. And now that conversation feels awkward or strained because you don't feel like you've heard him in a while. You're not in sin. We're not calling you a rebel. He's not mad at you. He he just misses you. And, And if you were to just mistake this as me talking about emotionalism and, hey, I'm not an emotional person, that's fine. I'm not as interested in your emotions as I am the pounding of your heart. And, and, and I don't really care if you cry or you don't cry. I just want to know, is this ticking at a rate that signifies that your affections for him are large? Like, is there something inside of you, a compulsion to lean his direction consistently? If not, he's not mad at you. I think it's important to know. You know, the enemy has strategy. And for most of us in the room, the enemy's already figured out that he can't get you to quit on the Lord. So the attempt is to divert and distract. To draw you into a season where there is a bit of numbness between you and God. So what do we do about this? Jesus gave us the antidote. He said, turn back to me. Do the works you did at first. And if you don't repent, basically says you won't make it. 
It's so serious to Jesus. He wants you so bad. You know, the word repent, because sometimes we have really locked in ideas of what words mean. For a lot of us, the word repent is heavily fixated on stop doing bad things. Can I tell you? People that don't know Jesus can stop doing bad things. There are plenty of people that don't know Jesus that don't do bad things. Do you get that? There are plenty of people that don't know Jesus that aren't addicts, that are faithful to their spouse, that don't lie, cheat, or steal. What makes repentance valuable is not what you turn away from nearly as much as who you turn to. And that's what makes us different. What sets us apart from the world, what makes us a peculiar people, what makes us foreigners and aliens in a strange land, is not all the bad stuff we don't do near as much as it is the posture of our heart that is pointed toward this living God, determined to live in loving affection with Him the rest of our life. That makes you different. It's your hunger. It's your love for God. And so Jesus says the response is, turn to me. Reposition to me.